but afterwards I thought, okay, I'll leave it. Okay, so I'm not going to take another macroeconomics class at university, and I never did. <laughs> so in my whole master's program, I, I think, well, maybe I had to take macroeconomics three, I think. Yeah, maybe this one class which was compulsory. Um, but beyond that, I, I did not hear any, any more of that because I thought it's, it's strange and I don't get it. I think in the exam, I said, if the interest rate goes up, you attract foreign capital, which is expansionary. Okay, and then they, of course, graded me zero because, mm. said, well, it's a domestic economy. Mm. And I thought, well, but we are Germany, okay? We export 40% of the, of GDP. And you're telling me that there's no foreign sector? And they said, yes. <laughs> and I said, okay, I shook my head and said, look, this is this macroeconomic stuff is not for me. Okay, so I, I don't know what you are talking about there, but but it doesn't make any sense. Welcome to Activist NNT, a podcast about real-world economics, including modern money theory, and how life changes when you discover it. I'm your host, Jeff Epstein. Today I talk with Dirk Entz about his personal journey to NMT, which happened only after obtaining a PhD in mainstream economics. One of Dirk's first hints that something was wrong was discovering that Paul Krugman's 1991 New Trade Theory was not representative of the world in which we actually live. He was also told by his professors that what is obviously true must be ignored which only serves to further diverge the theory from the world it purports to explain. Only after receiving his PhD did he discover MMT, which finally put all the pieces together. It did so in a way that is falsifiable, which means its main assertions are provable or disprovable by empirical evidence. Today in part one, Dirk and I also talk about how microeconomics and macroeconomics relate and are ultimately inseparable. We end with a question from activist MMT patron Kiel Harmson on the problems of the Eurozone and how to address them. Next week in part two, I ask Dirk questions circling around his new co-authored piece for the Gower Initiative called Raising Interest Rates is Like Blowing Up the Garden to Weed It. I start with some very basic questions about how and why central banks maintain the stability of the payment system. I then ask him to describe the specific mechanics of how the central bank raising the overnight interest rate target results in millions becoming unemployed and ultimately more exploitable. And now, on to my conversation with Dirk Entz. Enjoy. Holidays with my family. Yeah, what are you doing? It's um, special. Yeah, yeah, we're at the Baltic Sea. Um, mm-hmm. in, in a kind of smallish kind of beach resort. And okay. Well, this kind of good. <laughs> okay. How old are your kids? Um, five and seven now. Wow, five and seven. Okay. Mine are 12 and, 12 and 15. That's a different stage. Yeah. 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 Every stage is a different stage. It's supposed to be, uh, it's supposed to be the, uh, you know, you always hear about the terrible twos, but mm-hmm. actually m- my kids were very easy when they were two. They turned difficult when they got to like five. <laughs> so, okay. I don't know what happened, but, um, um, okay. Uh, I don't know if you've seen that, but, um, the the um, colleagues from the UK they published a paper or or some some authors from the uh, from Matsukato's Institute for what was it I I W P this 
innovation and pu public purpose, they published a paper on, on basically an MMT explanation of the British monetary system. So that's, that's an interesting development. Um, I, I didn't read it. I've seen the tweets about it. Uh, yeah. So they took, they took the UK exchequer paper and yeah. I guess made it more formal, but they're still referring to the original one, which is great. Like, yeah. so they're, yeah. So the fact that they're referring to the original as more detailed reference seems to be very significant, like a, a, a sign of, of real respect, like, like, you know, not just that they're validating what the paper says, but they're actually referring to the original work, even though it's not, you know, officially sanctioned by any academic institution. I think that that's a particularly nice gesture. Yeah, there was also there was a workshop where they invited a couple of MMT people, so at the IIPP, and I was also among them. So they they had the the authors present a paper, and then they thought about what to do with it, and it was always clear that there would be some kind of some kind of summary of it because the original paper is, is very difficult to read so yeah i read it twice <laughs> i can attest i want to talk about you i want to talk about your you, you have you have a, an interesting journey to mmt um i think only a, a very small amount of people kind of have your similar journey and i would say i guess stephen hale is the first that comes to mind of you know, starting having a PhD in, I think he had a PhD in mainstream and then discovered MMT and transitioned to it. He did it much later than you, I, I'm pretty sure it's safe to say. So I want to talk about that journey. I'm sure it was, I mean, you, you gave a hint of it in our, I think it was our first interview with Oscar, where you said, you know, you, I mean, you know, you, you had some, it was a pretty, in a way it was a stressful experience because you had to let go of your old community essentially. And they, you know, let go of you. So how did you get into economics? How did you decide on economics, your mainstream, and then the transition and all the consequences that come from that? And, um, you know, it's a pretty, it's a very broad question, but yeah. can you tell that story? Yeah. Okay. Um, so I first started studying uh, economics in 1997. I went to the University of Göttingen, which is kind of a famous university there. The quality was supposed to be very good. Well, it was a mainstream university, so in the end, I I did not learn much. In uh, I have to admit, but but anyway, so I studied economics and I I did development economics as um as a special field, and also IT. So I was trying to to get more skills in these two two kinds of of subjects, and um, yeah, it was straight neoclassical. There were two Keynesian professors there, but uh, they explained the ISLM model and these kind of issues. So I'm not sure how Keynesian that really was. Um, it was maybe Hicks-Hansen Keynesian, um, but definitely not like post-Keynesian or anything. So it was a completely mainstream program. The guy who was teaching this development economic stuff, he was eclectic. He w worked for the World Bank in Mexico for a couple of years before he, he became a professor. So what he taught us was very interesting because he, he took papers from all kinds of, of disciplines and talked about development, which for him was a multidimensional subject. And yeah, so I I graduated and then I started to work in Barcelona, working for um, Affiliated Computer Services of Spain, which was a subsidiary of ACS, which was based in Texas and they had 50,000 people worldwide in IT outsourcing. So I did the accounts payable for SAP Switzerland in Barcelona. So that was working for an English-speaking company in Spain, doing the accounting for a Swedish car maker in Switzerland. That was a very global job. And um, probably it connected me with this idea that balance sheets matter <laughs> and that the balance is balanced. They should, because every each, each uh, every end of the month, we had to make sure that the, the balance is balanced, of course. So, so after it was clear that my job would be outsourced to India, I came back to Germany and I, I did a PhD at University of Oldenburg. I was interested in the um, consequences of multinational firms arriving in a domestic kind of setting. So I, I looked at that from a theoretical perspective and I worked on in new kinemic geography, which was kind of invented by Paul Krugman. There was this 1991 paper, uh, the core periphery model. Um, so he tried to build on what something with, that is called new trade theory. So 
the idea that nations trade goods and services which are pretty similar, but because people have certain preferences, so they prefer to have a red shirt, a blue shirt, and a white shirt, they prefer that to having three blue shirts. So that, that means that some German people prefer to have a French car or drink French wine, whereas some French people would prefer to drink German wine or have a German car. Okay, so they so Krugman said, okay, so if there's increasing returns to scale, so if if your company gets bigger and the average costs are, are coming down, you would normally expect that in terms of economic space, everything would collapse into a single point, but it doesn't. So why not? Well, because people like to have different kind of varieties. Okay, so, so then you have also trade costs, and then you have this kind of new economic geography model where you tr are interested in, in the economic geography of things. So why does not everything collapse into one single point? Well, because there are transport costs. So if you are far away from a market, it's too expensive to export. And then you have a second factory then in the, in the periphery. These kind of issues, which are very relevant to the Eurozone uh, today, because there's no exchange rates. So new economic geography is, is about... Yeah, it's about, in a kind of way, it's, it's inter-regional economics. Okay, not international because there's no exchange rate, but inter-regional. And I, I created a paper where, well, some co-officers of mine and me, we tried to figure out whether these predictions that the new chemical geography models make, whether they are true or not, whether the reality is, is developing like the models uh, say. So the model said, um, that firms should move where wages are relatively low and productivity is relatively high, right? Because of supply side factor. And then we looked at the Nordic and the Baltic countries. So for, for the American audience, the, the Nordic countries are the, mostly the Scandinavian countries, Denmark, Finland, uh, Sweden, also Norway and Iceland. But we, also, we only looked at the Baltic area. So the Baltic Sea connects these countries, those Nordic countries, with the Baltic countries, which are small countries that are formerly Soviet uh, Union republics. So Estonia, uh, Latvia and Lithuania. Um, and they are kind of south of, of Finland, if you know a bit about European geography. And mm -hmm. we said, okay, let's examine what the theory says about where firms should go. And then we have the numbers from statistics and we know how many firms were created in the Baltics and the Nordics in the last 10 years or so. So I'm talking about the period roughly 1995, 2005. That's where we had data because the paper was published about 10 or 12 years ago in the Baltic Journal of Economics. So we found out that our, our model said that firms would go where they would have low wages and high productivity. But in reality, the firms went where, where demand was high. Okay, So that was the Baltic countries. Um, mm. So firms were created in the Baltic countries. And I... I said, okay, so it seems like there's there's money missing. So how is it possible that 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 you can have I don't know low wages or, or high wages and lots of economic activity? Shouldn't high wages be a problem? So this kind of connection of supply and demand was was not clear to me. So I thought, okay, so I need to understand money, and uh, and that's when I I started looking for for explanations of of monetary theory, starting with Axel Leinhufut, um, who who died a couple of weeks ago former UCLA economist of, of the Keynesian variety. And then I looked at, at other things. I found Richard Kuh, who talked about the private sector and the public sector and, and that that they would be intertwined. Mm -hmm. Then I found Randy Ray's blog, uh, New Chemic Perspectives, and he, he was publishing some chapters of his, his primer in MMT. And I, I commented on that primer. And when it was done, I met him at a conference in Berlin and I asked him, whether I, I could do a, a German translation, but uh, he said it's not possible. Somehow the, the publisher would not allow it. Mm. Um, yeah. And then I thought, okay, so if if this kind of MMT stuff is correct, then everything or then a lot of things that I taught at university would be wrong. So this idea that, for example, if you increase government spending in the ISLM model, which is the, the main macroeconomics tool that we're using when we teach in, in bachelor level, then they say interest rates will go up if governments spend more because there's more competition for scarcity of loanable funds, right? So in reality, MMT says, well, if government spends, it's by money creation, so banks have more reserves. And because they want to offer those reserves on the interbank market to earn some money, they drive the interest rate down because the supply of reserves goes up, but the demand for reserves does not go up. So you will have the price adjusting downwards, which is the interest rate. So 
So somebody has to sell government bonds to those banks to stop the interest rate from falling, which is not what the ISLM model says. So I asked uh, people that I knew, like uh, one of my colleagues from, from Göttingen, he went on to become a central banker at Bundesbank. And I asked some of these people like, okay, so what do you think happens when the government spends more? Does the central bank have to mop up liquidity or, or is there some kind of, of problem with the interest rate? And everybody agreed, no, no, it's, it's true. Interest rate goes down and they have to intervene. And they do this kind of automatically by now. So there's, there's, there's nothing that is going to happen there. But yeah, that kind of confirmed that, that this point was true. And I also checked the, the book by Georg Friedrich Knapp, the charterless book, State Theory of Money. So I read that and I thought, okay, yeah, that's, that's also in there. But you have to read between the lines. So MMT was invented more or less by Warren, Warren Mosler. And in Georg Friedrich Knapp, um, which is, again, from 1905, you, you cannot find this amount of detail, not at all. So, so Knapp hardly says the government spends first and then you tax. It's, you have to read between the lines because he, mm. I think he was careful not to be branded a socialist or something. <laughs> These were different times of imperial Germany when he published. So. Oh, so deliberate. It was deliberate obscurity yes. because yes. to protect himself. Yes. Yeah, this was, this was the, the German Reich which had colonies and which was in competition with the English. And there was a scare of, of socialists and communists and, and all these social democrats too. So I'm, I'm pretty sure that when he wrote the book, he, he was aware of all these political problems that this would create if he would speak out too openly. But I read some of the book reviews and I published a working paper on, on the academic reception of Knapp's book. And there were some authors who clearly understood what, that was, what Knapp was saying was, look, Economics is about scarcity and about economic laws, but there's one institution which is above the economic laws, which is the government mm -hmm. being a creator of money, having the monopoly on money creation, right? Ah. So, so one of the, the book reviewers said, what Knapp is suggesting here is that if the government wants, it could fix the price of bread, of rents, of wages, and all these kind of things, right? And of course, in today's world, we have all that. Okay, so at least in Germany, we have uh, we have minimum wages, as you do have in the US. We have rent control in Germany, for example. So you're not allowed to raise the rent every year if you're if you're renting out a flat or a house. It's not it's not possible. And we have we have all kinds of of prices which are controlled by the government. For example, prices for for Deutsche Bahn, which is our train system or train operator. So without Knapp, all of this would not have been possible to to foresee or to even imagine. A government which is interfering in the economy. It's not even interfering. It's, it's such a fundamental part in the economy that it can determine those kind of prices and it is above the economic laws. That was a shocker back, back then. I, I'm shocked that he got away with it. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, Keynes brought it up again. So, so John Maynard Keynes somehow uh, got to know the book. And he had it translated into English because he was, I think he was president of the Royal Economic Society. And they left out a couple of chapters towards the end. So this is why most of the English-speaking people say that, that Georg Friedrich Knapp did not think about the, the price level or, or inflation mm -hmm. or what some people call value. But in the German version, this is, I think it's the last chapter. Uh, it was not translated into English, but he writes about value saying that there is no such thing in value. Okay, so... There's prices. You can you can buy with your money. You can buy consumer goods, or you can buy a flat, or you can spend it all on ice cream. So there's no value to money as such, but there's always a very specific value to the persons who have money, and that was his point. Are you are you familiar of why those chapters were left out? Um, well, the, the theoretical part is a, roughly the first 100 pages, and then there's a historical part where he's describing all sorts of monetary system. And it's, I have to admit, it's kind of boring. So if you <laughs> the state theory of money, just read the first 100 pages, uh, <laughs> you will be okay. Because, because Knapp wrote the book after he discovered that the Austrians, they ran their own paper currency and they, they lost the war against, against also Prussia. So Prussia won a war against the, the against France. Then United Germany, so United Germany only exists since 1870, before it was Bavaria, Prussia, all these kind of countries. And, and Knapp wanted to understand, how is it possible? The Austrians lost the war, they have no more gold, but they still have a, a paper currency which works. 
So how is it possible? How is it possible to have money which has no inherent value? Okay, so that's why he started the book, which, by the way, he, he probably finished in, in the late 1890s. He only published it a little bit later. I don't know why, but he taught at Berlin University in the late 1890s. He taught his kind of monetary theory there. So it seems also that he, he had he spent a couple of years uh, thinking about whether to publish the book or not. Because otherwise, you, he would have published the book right away, right? So there must have been some reason for him to delay publication until 1905. Hmm. That's a remarkable um, twist to to the story, to be able to introduce something so groundbreaking under the radar of such dangerous oppression, of oppression. Yeah. That's, that's a very interesting twist. Yeah. Um, okay, I have some questions. When you were in school... Before you discovered MMT, yeah, did it feel there's something off about this, or did it just did you just accept it as totally correct? And was it was it just um, you know like this is just blind memorization? There's no rhyme or reason to it. Like, what were your feelings when you were actually in school before considering that maybe this is not empirical? Well. I, I kind of digested this kind of mainstream stuff and um, I always found it a bit strange. Okay, so when I was um, doing my bachelor, I had lots of time to spend because it was it was only, I think it was six hours of lectures each week and then you had these summer vacations also, so there was, there was not much to do, to be honest. Mm-hmm. So I started reading, I started with Adam Smith and then I read Ricardo and then Keynes also. And I found these books to be very, very broad. Okay, they discuss they discuss lots of topics there, and everything was interconnected. And mainstream economics was making things very simple, so simple that you would say, or that I would think, uh, how is it possible? Okay, so so there, there were books about development and the wealth of nations and so on, which were like hundreds of pages. And then just they just summed it up with neoclassical economics, saying, well, you just need to develop capital. And if you have this golden rule of saving, blah, 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 you can have an optimal society where you grow. Uh, or if you have inflation, just move the interest rate up and down and that's going to fix it. Mm. And I thought to myself, so how, how is it possible that, that the answers now are so simple and the answers in, in those old books are so complicated? So I was always interested in the history of economic thought and, and I've been publishing also there and just a little bit. But over the years, I, I always... Yeah, read read new stuff, new books, meaning old books about these from from these old older times. And the the one thing that I did not understand was this idea of money supply equals money demand. So I thought, okay, so what what do you mean by money supply, and what do you mean exactly by money demand, and why why should these be equal? Okay, so this was the one thing where I thought that macro is not macroeconomics is not for me. That's what I thought. That's what I took away from my macroeconomics lesson. And I, I finished with the worst possible grade in macroeconomics <laughs> that you could get. And I thought afterwards, I thought, okay, I'll leave it. Okay, so I'm not going to take another macroeconomics class at university. And I never did. <laughs> so in my whole master's program, I, I think, well, maybe I had to take macroeconomics three, I think. Yeah, maybe this one class, which was compulsory. Um, but beyond that, I, I did not hear any, any more of that because I thought it's, it's strange and I don't get it. I think in the exam, I said, if the interest rate goes up, you attract foreign capital, which is expansionary. Okay. And then they, of course, graded me zero mm. because, mm. Said, well, it's a domestic economy. Mm. And I thought, well, but we are Germany. Okay. We export 40% of, the, of GDP. And you're telling me that there's no foreign sector? And they said, yes. <laughs> and I said, okay. I shook my head and said, look, this is this macroeconomic stuff is not for me. Okay. So I, I don't know what you are talking about there, but but it doesn't make any sense. Um, mm. So, yeah. So everything else was, was more or less okay. And I, I, never, I never thought something fishy here. But, of course, with, with hindsight, of course, I, I think to myself, I, I, should have, I should have been more critical. But I wasn't. And it's, it's a kind of a social thing. So the other students were okay with what they were being taught, right? Just in the way that normally we have now a lot of pluralist economic students who are, are standing up and saying, look, um, your theories do not make any sense. Can you not teach us something else? <laughs> okay. 
so yeah i was i was in this group in the 1990s late 1990s and it's it was this kind of zeitgeist that people thought well the wall the wall has collapsed and the planned economy is dead and capitalism has won uh so we have to give more markets more power to markets and we have to reduce state intervention that was the the, the widespread feeling there so you you had a bachelor's and a master's in economics though right yep okay um okay so balance sheets did balance you you said you learned balance sheets at your job after i believe before your phd i believe that's right Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah okay so you you worked at a company uh and you you discovered or learned or the the significance of balance sheets at that time you did not learn balance sheets at all during during your education Oh yeah, I did. Um, so I had the class in accounting, but I mean, oh. it's it's very far away from my own practical experience. So I mean, teaching accounting without actually working in accounting is is a bit of a strange exercise. It's like trying to learn to swim if you are if you have no water around you. Uh, it's very theoretical. Okay. Um, so seeing it and then ty- typing in those numbers into the computer, I mean, it it was only accounting, but it kind of opened my eyes that that what the what what the accounting really is? It's a, it's it's a very elaborated statistics system, and you you can describe money flows with that. Okay, so so balance sheets do not show money, but they they, they represent money. Okay, so so if you have money in a balance sheet, it's not really money; it's an abstraction. And I think that is what I learned from my job that that if you want to talk about money, and if you if you want to talk about central banking, monetary policy, government spending, and all these things, then it would be great to see how this works out in balance sheets because I saw it all work out in balance sheets for for Saab Switzerland. I can I can tell you the name of that company because it it does not exist anymore. So Saab <laughs> is a nice Swedish car maker, um, and it, it went I think it went belly up in in the global financial crisis sometime around then. Yeah. Um, yeah so I think that's that's why I as an economist I I was accepting balance sheets as a method to describe reality because I've been doing that in my job for for almost a year. So. So can you describe the balance sheets or accounting or whatever in your education and why it was off? No, I think it it wasn't off in a way. I mean, if you would have if I would have worked in accounting in Germany, it would probably help have helped me some. But the problem was that I was I was just doing accounts payable. So it's not that I would create the whole balance sheet for the whole company, but I would just be adding bits and parts on the balance sheet here and there. And uh, I would not, I would not see the whole thing being created. That was a part part of the chief financial officer who did that. So yeah, it's it's not that accounting wasn't helpful in at university, but I I never was taught macroeconomic accounting, and that's that's what I think about when I when I talk about MMT. It's it's basically macroeconomic accounting, uh, both on the micro and macro level. So either you you look at how governments create money, or you have uh, the sectoral balances, so private sector, public sector, external sector, that's macroeconomic accounting, and it's, it has its own methodology in a way, uh, which is not compatible with, with accounting from the business and administration courses. So you did not learn macroeconomic accounting in macroeconomics? No. Okay. Um, all right. So why don't we talk about how you okay well when did you read Keynes in in your you know in the span of your education from undergraduate to master's to PhD when did you read Keynes I presume I mean he contradicts I mean he totally contradicts a lot of the mainstream so like when did you read him and how did that affect you well I read that in the second year of my education so it must have been 1998 or 99 um, and I mean reading it it was difficult because it was in English and I'm not a native speaker and it's also difficult because it's very hard for stu- for students and scholars who are st- just starting with with their stuff to to make those connections from from what Keynes is saying to modern macroeconomics because modern macroeconomics is about equations and models and when you see Keynes for example talking about the natural rate of interest and how he once thought it would be a good idea and a good concept and now he thinks that it's not because for every level of government spending, you have one natural rate of interest that would lead to an inflation rate of zero. Then to to read this and then connect it to those models that you get taught at university, that's that's very difficult to do. And I was not able, I was not ready. I was not mentally strong enough to do that, not maybe intelligent enough. Mm-hmm. Um, now with hindsight, of course, it's, it's much more clearer. But 
but these kind of mainstream models, they they do not allow you to connect what is in the past to what is in the present. And that's, I think, one of the reasons why it is put up like this. Okay, so when you, do a, when you are doing mainstream macroeconomics or mainstream economics, adding something from, from like 1800-something to, to those kind of, of arguments is very, very difficult. And that means you always start with a clean slate when you produce mainstream economics because everything you want to say, you need to, to spell out in equations. And everything that is not spelled out in equations is basically off limits. Okay, so it's very hard to think about these things because because the models do not allow this. <laughs> and yeah, that was that was um, that was the reason why I guess I, I didn't see it then. Yeah. So all right, so I'll have I think two more questions regarding this whole topic, this whole first hour thing. Number one is what? So what was it? Did you have an instinct? to begin with that something was off or was there something particular like you're reading Keynes or Napper or that, that started you on this, you know, I'm doubting what I'm, I'm doubting what I'm being taught. Yeah. Well, we, we published this paper in the Baltic journal of economics and in the conclusion, of course, we said, well, we, we tried to gain some understanding of empirical reality using this model from the new economic geography, applying it. Okay, calibrating it. And we found out that the model doesn't work. Okay, so the model says that firms should locate where unit labor costs are low, and instead firms locate where unit labor costs are high. And why is this? Well, because when unit labor costs are high, it means that there's a lot of economic demand, right? A lot of aggregate demand. So people can buy a lot of stuff. So that's where firms go. They want to be where people have more a lot of money. And that was the result of it. So I thought, okay, the model did not prove to be very useful. When I was younger, I was kind of a fan of Paul Krugman. So mm. I thought, okay, never mind. So let's let's improve the model. So I thought, okay, I have to incorporate money into this kind of model so that it can create a better fit with reality. So I thought to myself, okay, it was 2007, by the way, when, when this happened. So the paper was only published in 2010 because it takes ages to publish stuff. So I thought, okay, let's let's try to understand money. So I was sitting there, um, and I I asked my PhD advisor because I finished my PhD, and also at the same time I said, look, uh, I would be interested in in how money is created. So can you see, can you offer me some guidance? And also, if is is it okay if I just stay longer at university as a research research assistant, because I'm I'm done with my PhD? And he said, well, yeah. Please do. You you do. You're good at teaching, so I'm I'm happy to have you. It's it's just half a position which I can offer to you. But if you want to sit there and read, it's okay with me. And and here's some literature. So he, he gave me some some stuff from Knut Wicksell, if I remember correctly, which is nice because Knut Wicksell also knew about endogenous money creation in banks. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so that's that's when I started looking for for other schools. I I found also Irving Fisher's 100% money proposal. Which I think when I initially read it, I liked it, and I, I commented on that on my blog. <laughs> um, now I don't because I've learned that fractional reserves banking is not what we what we have. Yeah, and, and that's, I mean, that's where I started my journey, and it took me again it took me two or three years to find Randy and the others. And then when I read the stuff, I thought, yeah, that's that's the questions that I wanted to ask. Okay, so where does money come from? That's very important, and yeah, and that's. That's how I came, came, or that's how I converted into an MMT scholar in a way, um, be, because I just thought, okay, so you can falsify these MMT statements, okay? So when you say mm. the, the central bank is the currency issuer, that's falsifiable, okay? So if you find anybody else who can create euros, for example, well, then you would falsify this MMT statement, or they, or MMT says. That I don't know, as Stephanie Kelton puts it, the government's red ink is the private sector's black ink. Well, if you find somebody who can falsify this, then that's also okay. Just uh, just falsify it. It's an empirical theory. Um, so I was just thinking to myself, okay, I'm a scientist. So so if it's empirically right, then then I have to go the MMT way. And because Randy said that I cannot uh, translate the book. I thought, okay, so it's too important. I will write my own book about the Eurozone and how money is created in the Eurozone. <laughs> and that came out in 2014. Just, um, I think I, I gave the 
the manuscript to the publisher about uh, three weeks before our, our daughter was born. So oh, wow. that, was, that was some kind of deadline, I can tell you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, one thing I don't understand is empirically companies move to where demand is high, which means where wages are higher because when demand is high, that it reflects that people have more money to spend. I think that's right. But I don't understand how that squares with they want to lower wages and stop unions and basically they want to create an environment where wages are low. So how do those two things square? Yeah, that's that's a very good question, and it's it's um, because it's it's right where economics is most complicated. Okay, so it's about these microeconomic interactions and the macroeconomic outcomes, uh, and then also how how macroeconomic outcome outcomes have an effect on microeconomic decisions. So of course, for the firms, for for the individual firm, the wage is a cost. Okay, and if it would be great if they could reduce these costs to zero. Okay, so zero wages would be perfect for firms. They wouldn't complain. Okay, so if they would have a bunch of workers, they show up, they work, and they get zero, that's fine with them. Okay, the problem is if all the firms have these kind of workers, then all the firms also have a problem because they cannot sell a single unit of output, at least not to their workers, because they have no money, right? Um, And that's where you have these fallacies of composition. Okay, so we call these things fallacies of composition where you think uh, that what is best for one firm then is not best for all the firms i think the standard story is that if you go to a cinema and during the movie somebody who's sitting in front of you stands up and you can see well then if you also said stand up you kind of solve the problem but you will force all the other people behind you also to stand up so in the in the end it's not the optimal solution to 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 solve this kind of problem okay so by by trying to solve the problem you make it bigger and that means that when, when companies notice that they cannot sell everything that they produce and then they try to cut wages and they succeed, they will have even bigger problems because they will now be able to sell even less. Okay. Mm. And that's just kind of that's why economics is very important because from if you just study the business, just one business, then you will not see these systemic effects. But we're talking about systemic effects here. So so economics is most important where you have these systemic effects. Um, another example is when you, when you, I don't know, when you board a canoe, for example, then the canoe starts to tilt in one direction and everybody's going towards the other direction and then the whole thing turns over completely because everybody was, was showing the same reaction. That's also a very good example. Okay, so, so economics is, is always important. It's always, yeah, it's always most important as, as an informative source for policymakers where these kind of effects happen that people try to do the right thing, whether they be entrepreneurs or consumers or, or whatever. But, by, but if all of them do the same kind of, of thing, then you, you get an outcome which nobody wanted to see. And, and that's the effect. So, so the firms, they want to have low wages in their own firm and they want to have high wages everywhere, everywhere else. Okay, so, so that's, that's what, the, what is creating this kind of tension. So, so that's why firms want to go to a big market, but they still want to pay very low wages. And that's creating this kind of tension that is also, I mean, this kind of tension is part and parcel of these new economic geography models where you have a core periphery structure or you have a a symmetric structure. So both regions are the same size and it's kind of stable. The question is, if people start moving from A to B, will more people then move from A to B? And you have some kind of economic structure which has a center and a periphery. And, and these are fundamental questions of economics. So, for example, in the U.S., you have Wall Street and you have Silicon Valley. Okay, and these are very, very large focal points. And the question is, if more people move to the Wall Street and more people move to Silicon Valley and that on those areas, will this create some kind of, of sucking sound? So will, will there be some kind of self-sustaining process that will see uh, Americans move to West Coast and East Coast respectively until there's nobody left in the center? Um mm-hmm. So, yeah, these are very important real-world questions. Okay, I, I, I actually – okay, so what you're suggesting is the desire to lower wages to control – I mean, I'll say control workers, which is part – lowering wages is part of that, is a microeconomic phenomenon. The macroeconomic phenomenon is that they move to where wages are higher because that is where demand is higher, and ultimately they want to sell more stuff. 
Yes. But it, it's also true that that microeconomic thing of wanting to suppress workers, of wanting to control workers and lower their wages, is to such an extent that it threatens our species. So in one sense, it's micro, but in another sense, it's kind of macro because it really is to the extent that, you know, inequality and, and the state of the society that we're in. So how is that not a macro phenomenon? Yeah, that, that's why I said that the mac, micro and macro phenomena are interacting. Okay, so so in the US, for example, I, I believe it's because, okay, I have to go back a half a, half a century. Okay, so, so 1971, um, the Bretton Woods system was abandoned because the, the United States was bleeding gold. Okay, so um, because of the Vietnam War, a lot of stuff was imported by the US. And that meant the rest of the world was accumulating dollars. And then because this happened, the American dollar was, was how do I put it, was not very competitive. Okay, so a lot of American companies saw that their, their competitors sold a lot of stuff to the U.S. So they said, we're not competitive. We could build this stuff also in America, but we can't because the price is not just, it's, it's just not right. Okay, so I think that in 1971, the American economy underwent a fundamental change because the the entrepreneur, the the companies, not the entrepreneurs, but the companies like the bureaucrats, they understood that that in order to be competitive, they would have to put da- push down wages, and that's what they did. So that's why in the United States, wage growth and productivity growth have have been uh, decoupling since basically the early 1970s. And that, of course, has has forced a lot of bad things on on the whole planet. You have lots of inequality in the U.S. now, so it's it's really high, especially compared to European countries. Also, because people are now so poor compared to to the trajectory they were on in the 1970s, they buy a lot of cheap products, and that's that has enabled this exploitation of the earth. That you get all this cheap plastic stuff also from China and other places which is ecologically very bad. So it would have been much better to, to have richer people who, who consume less of these cheap goods, hmm. which are also very bad for the environment. Also textiles, for example. If you, normally, if you buy cheap stuff, it's, it doesn't last, last as long as, as if you buy more expensive stuff. Um, and, it's made with, and clothes are made with plastic too. Yeah. So, yeah, so th- that's, that's why micro and macro phenomena, they interact, but it's, um, it takes a lot of, a lot of years for these macroeconomic phenomena to, f- to feed down to the microeconomic uh, sphere. So, so I think, for example, that it's not a good idea to divide macroeconomics from microeconomics. I think the two belong together because the macroeconomics is just the, the examination of, of systemic phenomena of microeconomic stuff that has happened, Okay. Um, no, that, that's okay. All right. And I have, I have a lot of questions about that, but I, I don't want to, I don't want to go down that path right now. Um, that's very interesting. Uh, okay. Well, why don't we, why don't we end this subject by asking the question, uh, you, when you discovered MMT, that had very big consequences for you. So can you describe those consequences of what you lost and then you know, eventually what, what you gained because of discovering and accepting MMT. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I think that MMT was, was like 10 years ago in Germany, it wasn't outside a theory. And when I explained this to, to other students, like PhD students, I said, well, that sounds very interesting. And we cannot, we do not know about, enough about macroeconomics and monetary theory to, to say that you are wrong or, or to point out some kind of critique. But but if they always said to me, if if you want to have an academic career, don't go down this road. Okay, because nobody's doing this kind of stuff. And there's a lot of people against this who want to continue with their ideas about how the reality how reality works. So in Germany, for example, the post-Keynesians were almost all of them against MMT. I think up to this day, there's only one German post-Keynesian, um, Peter Bofinger, who understands MMT. I think he really does, at least like 90% of it, let's say. And, <laughs> and he, he came out in favor and said, look, MMT is, is correct as a description. 
in the international post-Cajun world, you have Steve Keen and even Louis-Philippe Rochon or Marc Lavoie. There's many scholars there who say that, that MMT is correct as a description of the monetary system. But in Germany, it, was, it wasn't. And also in the UK, um, there was nobody. Same with France or, or Spain. So in Europe, and I, I'm not sure why that is, but in Europe, MMT didn't catch on. It, it might be a cultural problem because with M, when you understand MMT, you, you clearly understood that the zero was a problem, okay? So if you have, if you have a currency, which um, by now 19 countries are using, and then you have these deficit limits, it was kind of clear that this is a completely anti-Keynesian system, okay? So if you understand MMT and if you understand that the government has to take care of full employment, then of course you would say, well, then the eurozone is really the worst of, of uh, monetary systems that you can imagine, right? Because governments are forced to, to reduce government spending when the, the deficits are, are above 3% of GDP because that's what the Stability and Growth Pact says, right? And I think this probably was a political situation. So, so politically, there was, a lot of, there was a lot of debate about the euro, but apparently progressive left-wing people thought that, that the euro will have to stay and that it is a good idea that, that it should stay. Um, whereas MMT clearly said that it's not a good idea and that you should change the way that the Eurozone is set up because otherwise you will suffer mass unemployment. Okay, so Wynne Gordney said that too, and that's why the UK uh, were left, was left out. And of course, um, the chief economist of Margaret Thatcher said the same thing in a book about, about uh, sterling, um, about the pound sterling. So... I think it was a political reason, maybe. So I'm, I'm still guessing because nobody ever told me why Why they were only... I mean, the post-Keynesians in Germany wrote anti-MMT papers. Tom Pelly had these papers. Oh, um, Pally. He, I didn't realize he was European. I thought he was American. He was American, but he, he's, he appeared a lot on the European circuit of post-Keynesians. And uh-huh. um, I mean, I was there for about 10 years and they could always ask me questions about MMT, but nobody did. So I, I figured out that they're not interested in MMT. And that's mm-hmm. why I don't go anymore, um, because they they don't want to they don't want to know about it. They don't want to understand. It's it, it's it's pretense, roughly. Okay, so it's okay. I mean, they're interested in their post Keynesian stuff, but I think personally that a good description of the monetary system is is what what the Keynesian position should be, because it's objective. But I accept that. So the, so they went down another road. And that was, of course, it was difficult for me because I had no, I had no position and I had no, no possibility to find an academic position because it's, it's a small world and the post-Keynesians were about the only ones who, who at least in theory could, could create positions. Um, yeah, but, but it seems like, like politics has, has gotten in there. But of course, I mean, MMT is not a theory that says that the, the euro is, is something which we, we cannot fix. So the MMT says that there are certain things that, that the monetary system should allow. And one of those ideas is that the government can spend in order to have full employment and price stability. And in the Eurozone, we can, we can of course, have a reform and, and add those capabilities. And, and to some extent, the ECB has already reacted. And now we have become more like, like the US. I mean, the Eurozone nations were, were just like the US government. They were currency issuer in the last two years. And we will... We will also, for next year, we have suspended the Stability and Growth Pact. So in the end, from 2020 to 2024, the end of it, so it's, it, it's going to be almost four years of, of having currency issues in the Eurozone. So now the Eurozone is, is much more flexible. And I prefer to look forward and say, look, it's, it's not a problem. I'm going to do this MMT stuff. There's lots of people uh, on, on the planet here doing MMT and, and trying to push this forward. So, so I hope no grudge and, um, yeah, that's, that's the story. Okay. So, so then looking forward or, or from the point that you accepted MMT looking forward, how did you find a, basically a new community and, and a career and can you answer from that point of view? Yeah, well, I mean, there's, there's always people who, who try to understand reality and, and, um, and learn from, from others. So there were a couple of persons who, who were very, very helpful. And, and also, of course, I, I met all these MMTers. Uh, I met Stephanie and Randy and, and Scott and also Rowan and uh, Nathan Tankus, Pavina, I met a couple of times. 
so so that helped quite quite a lot. Warren Mosler was very helpful also in answering emails and being there for conferences and so on. So yeah, I I think that that was very important to me that I have a group of people that I can work with and that we can uh, broaden the paradigm. And now with um, Steve Hale in Australia, who's creating this this graduate program, I will also be an external lecturer with with them. And that's going to be very exciting because we we are trying to find answers to these very pressing questions like what do we what what do we do in a world where we have limited resources but unlimited money so so how do we set up the monetary system that we can get the results that we need in in terms of the the resources so that's that's all very very promising and also I mean I think just just yesterday Marianas Matsukato's Institute for Innovation and uh, Public Purpose published a paper confirming that also the United Kingdom has a sovereign currency and and cannot run out of money, which was based on a on a paper, a longer paper from colleagues there. So I think it's it's going very well, and um, yeah, this this MMT group is growing. Can you come teach at our university? We don't have a lecturer for maybe a year, so you can you can fill in as a replacement, and and that's how I move from job to job basically. And yeah, I mean, it's, I get more and more work. And yeah, I, I think this, this year is the first year where I would say that I have too many things to do. I've got too much <laughs> on my plate. So, um, so I have to say, no, I, I just declined also a couple of offers for lectures and I will yeah. have to decline more. So, so demand is picking up and that's, again, it's a good thing. It allows me to pick uh, those, those jobs where I get decent money and I don't have to, to work for, let's say 30 euros an hour which is not a lot in teaching. So maybe 30 hours, 30 euros an hour sounds a lot. It's the equivalent of roughly $35 an hour, but I cannot teach eight hours like this for, for on, on a day. Um, so it means you get maybe $120 a day and then you have to go to that school by, by train on, and then come back and you have to prepare lectures and grade the exams. So it's a lot of work. All right, so let's transition to uh, the uh, more academic stuff, which is uh, you wrote a paper, uh, the title, Blowing Up the Garden in Order to Weed It, uh, for GIMS, which was a translation. Oh, raising interest rates is like blowing up the garden to weed it. And it's uh, on GIMS, but it's an English translation of, I forget, I think Swedish article that you wrote with several other people. Um, uh, Okay, so all my questions are going to be circling around that. But before we get to that, I have a question from a patron. Uh, His name is, I hope I'm pronouncing this correctly, Kiel Harmsen. I believe he's Dutch. So this is his question for you. Uh, I'm aware that the way that the Euro project is constructed is not right. It hampers the possibilities for the member state to react to adversities with monetary and fiscal means. Without abandoning the Euro altogether, which reforms would be advisable from from an MMT point of view? Can you, can you address that please? Yeah. Okay. So, so, um, as I said before, the, the problem with the Eurozone is that there's, there's nobody politically responsible for having the right amount of government spending to, to get to full employment and price stability. We're lacking this kind of institution. Normally, it's the national government, um, like in the US, the federal government, but we don't have a federal government of Europe. We have the European Commission, and it's, it's, it's called the European Commission and not the European government because it's more like, like something smaller. Okay, so their budget... It's roughly 1% of GDP of the Eurozone or, or the European Union as a whole. So, so they can't do the task because they get their money from, from uh, the national governments, which move uh, tax revenues towards the European Commission, and then they can spend those. So the national governments cannot be the employer of last resort um, because their government spending is limited by those deficit limits and now the debt breaks that they have introduced. Okay, so that's a big problem, and that means that we we have a high unemployment rate almost all of the time. Okay, so before the great financial crisis, or global financial crisis, and after it, and also during Corona. Um, so I think now, in the beginning of this year, the unemployment rate in the eurozone was for the first time under seven percent. Okay, so under seven percent, and that's that's a big failure, of course. So what can we do? There's two possibilities to come out of this problem. Okay, I always say that we walked into a river on a horse, and now we are noticing that that the either the horse is too short or the river is too deep. It's it's your it's your choice. Okay, <laughs> so 
either we we just swim a little bit with a horse and then we we go out we, we come out of the river on the other side okay so that would be we become the united states of europe okay so you say to the to the european commission please create a euro treasury in luxembourg which is not part of the official eu institutions then they can sell european euro bonds and then this is how they get money the ECB can buy those euro, euro bonds without limit because it's not uh, financing some government because it's it's a Luxembourg-based Luxembourg -based institution which is not part of the EU. Um, so it's a kind of trick to get around these kind of, of laws that, that prohibit direct financing of central banks on, and national governments. So that's one possibility, okay, to, to go big. United States of Europe and then you have just, you have Brussels spend whatever is necessary to have full employment in all of Europe, have maybe a European job guarantee. Uh, Pavlina and I wrote a paper with Esteban uh, about this kind of, of idea. And the other solution is to give monetary sovereignty back to the national federal governments. And that's the solution that we picked in 2020. Okay, so the Stability and Growth Pact was deactivated. The, the general escape clause was, was pulled. And then the ECB said, okay, we will buy up massive amounts of your government bonds so that there's no doubt that there will be always a, a buyer of last resort. So whenever a government wants to spend in the eurozone and they have to sell bonds to bring back their accounts at the central bank to zero on, in, in the evening, because that's a political rule. So central banks can, can make payments on behalf of the government and this drives their account into negative territory. And to come back, you need tax revenues and bond revenues to go back to zero at the end of the day. That's a strange system, but that's what we have. And yeah, and, and because of this pandemic emergency purchase program by the ECB and the, the Stability and Growth Pact, which was deactivated, we have reverted to a situation where, where everybody can create euros without limit. Okay, it's a bit odd, but we have 19 Eurozone countries. They all create euros and all theoretically and politically right now in unlimited amounts. Of course, you could say, well, that's just transitionary. Um, yeah, of course, that's true. But the transition will be four years, and we will be discussing the fiscal rules also this year and next year. So it's, it's clear to most policymakers that the deficit rules don't work. The question is, is there a political will to create new rules, or at least make sure that we can somehow not apply the existing ones? So, for example, the Irish government invited me a couple of months ago and they, they asked me, like, how can we have some green investment and also have the deficit limit? It's not going to work for the Irish, okay? And, and, and that, of course, is a, is a, bad, it's a bad situation. So I think everything is in flux and there was nobody calling for austerity this time in the Eurozone. And I think people are aware of the problem. Policymakers are aware of it. The Ukraine war has also led to a tighter Europe, okay? So discussing that a country would leave the euro right now is it's impossible. With, as long as the Ukraine situation lasts, so Russia invaded the, the Ukraine, and that, of course, means that, that all of Europe feels threatened here. You, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't want to leave the eurozone right now. I mean, you, you don't want to disassociate yourself with those powers who have atomic weapons like, like France, for example, or the UK, which is not mm. the European Union anymore, but nevertheless. So you don't want to get out of the, you don't want to leave the bandwagon right now. Um, so, yeah, so that's a situation. It's kind of odd, but an unintended consequence of the, the war in Ukraine is that the euro is, is kind of, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fixed kind of, of thing. There's been a lot of debate about Brexit and, and Frexit and Italexit and Spexit and whatnot. <laughs> um, but, but all of that is not going to happen because Europe needs to be politically united right now, at least for the next couple of years. Um, so, yeah, th this means that a lot of progressives will now say, well, OK, we have to fix the euro. There's no way around it. Well, I, I think that the Greeks would have been better off if they would have left in the eurozone about 10 years ago. So I'm not describing some, something here which, which I like. I mean, the euro is a political choice. And if you think that there, there should be more European integration, you should push for a Euro Treasury and this kind of United States of Europe solution. Or you can say, well, I prefer to have like a commonwealth of European nations and then we can keep the Euro, but let's make sure that liquidity and solvency are always insured. So let's have this kind of pandemic emergency purchase program back 
and the ECB will guarantee more or less that all these governments can always spend money. You could introduce full employment targets, for example, which is a suggestion that I made in a paper last year. So, yeah, there's, there's lots of things that could be done from an MMT perspective. Um, but I would say the most important thing is that the Eurozone has already understood MMT and they understood that in a crisis, you have to get rid of the deficit limits and you have to have this kind of bond purchase program. So I think in April 2020, I wrote an article on in Brave New Europe where I said that, that the Eurozone has understood MMT and that we will not have a Eurozone crisis this time. And I mean, yeah, that, that was correct. I think that's the correct correct view. But I mean, it's again, we're still in the middle of the river. We still need to rethink. Do we want to go ahead and have a federal Europe or do we want to go back to nation states? And uh, maybe we could dissolve the euro in the future at some point if, if that is somehow a good idea. But right now, again, these discussions are, are off limits. Okay. Um, okay. All right. Thank you. So I have, a, I have a whole bunch of questions for you. So we're going to discuss uh, basically inflation and monetary policy and uh, all these questions going forward are going to be circling around your article, your GIMS article, raising interest rates is like blowing up the garden to weed it. I'll link to it in the show notes. Okay. So I want to start off by uh, really basic questions. Um, I've always struggled to get my head around interest rates and their, their specific effects. And I'd like, to, I'd like to start by asking this question. So only the central bank can supply reserves. Today I talk with Dirk Entz about his personal journey to MMT, which happened only after obtaining a PhD in mainstream economics. One of Dirk's first hints that something was wrong was discovering that Paul Krugman's 1991 New Trade Theory was not representative of the world in which we actually live. 
He was also told by his professors that what is obviously true must be ignored, which only serves to further diverge the theory from the world it purports to explain. Only after receiving his PhD did he discover MMT, which finally put all the pieces together. It did so in a way that is falsifiable, which means its main assertions are provable or disprovable by empirical evidence. Today in part one, Dirk and I also talk about how microeconomics and macroeconomics relate and are ultimately inseparable. We end with a question from activist MMT patron Kiel Harmson on the problems of the Eurozone and how to address them. Next week in part two, I ask Dirk questions circling around his new co-authored piece for the Gower Initiative called Raising Interest Rates is Like Blowing Up the Garden to Weed It. I start with some very basic questions about how and why central banks maintain the stability of the payment system. I then ask him to describe the specific mechanics of how the central bank raising the overnight interest rate target results in millions becoming unemployed and ultimately more exploitable. And now, on to my conversation with Dirk Entz. Enjoy.